0: you're listening to future thinking from stylus the show where our analysts alongside industry thought leaders unpack the big trends you need to know about find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com
1: hello and welcome to future thinking from stylus i'm your host christian ward head of brand engagement and multimedia strategy at stylus today we're going to be talking about the business of wellness Physical and mental wellness has been a huge priority for everyone over the past 12 months, but what new opportunities for consumers and brands are emerging, both short and long-term? To discuss this, I'm joined by Rick Stolmeyer, co-founder of MindBody, a technology platform that connects the world to wellness. Rick is also the author of Building a Wellness Business That Lasts, How to Make a Great Living Doing What You Love, which was released in October last year. I'm also joined by Estella Shardlow, Stylus' Senior Editor of Consumer Lifestyle. So welcome to you both. So Rick, at Stylus, we believe that every brand is in the wellness business right now, but perhaps we can start by asking what does being in the wellness business mean, and can every brand tap into this need successfully?
0: Well, first of all, Christian and Estella, thank you for having me here, and it's a pleasure to be speaking to you. Indeed, wellness. Everyone is in the business of wellness today because wellness is really everything about what makes a healthy and happy life. Commonly, we speak to physical wellness, physical well-being being being physical fitness, exercising more, eating the right foods. But also there's mental well-being, there's emotional well-being, there's social well-being, there's occupational well-being, and there's spiritual well-being. In fact, uh, people who really are immersed in this area think of it as the seven dimensions of wellness. And I think in this, in this rather unique time in human history, all of these issues are at the forefront.
1: Uh, how do you sort of approach these seven uh, dimensions of wellness through the, through the work you do with MindBody?
0: Well, MindBody was born in my garage uh, 21 years ago. My co-founders and I saw the emergence of this industry where wellness was not just something that you practice at home, but it become uh, a meaningful collection of business categories. And we also sensed that this, these unique kinds of businesses, and at the time, this was the emergence of boutique fitness, you know, yoga, Pilates, and spinning, things like that, and, and many variants upon that. And this was happening all over the world at the same time in the early 2000s. And, and what we saw was that, that this kind of business has a specific set of operating needs. Our, our business, MindBody, is a technology platform for the wellness industry designed to meet all of those things. And we decided early on to go at it from a B2B perspective first. We wanted to serve the needs of the wellness businesses and the wellness practitioners they serve first. Because we reasoned that if we could enable those folks to have sustainable businesses, then we could touch the lives of tens of millions or maybe hundreds of millions of people one day. And then we also knew that we wanted to build an online marketplace, a place where people could come to find those services, get educated on what these things can do for them to sample them, to where prices could be adjusted according to people's needs. You know, if you have a higher income and you can afford it, then you would go to those peak time classes and appointments. And if you're perhaps somebody on a more limited income, but you have time flexibility, you could find those, those classes and appointments that are less expensive. And so that required the, the construction of this marketplace, which we, the best place to see that is in the MindBody app. And we also have a web version about that as well. And you can download that from iOS or Android. And I always tell people to spend 10 minutes looking at the app and you'll know, you pretty much understand what we do, understanding that we're managing the back end of those businesses as well as that interface that consumers are using.
1: Estella, as Rick mentioned, this is a you know wellness is a trend that's been growing obviously for the past couple of decades. But it seems in the past 12 months for obvious reasons that you know it's really ramped up as an imperative for consumers. What what's your take from a stylist perspective on this? influx of of new interest in wellness.
2: Yeah I think this is such a fascinating topic to be covering today because what we've seen um, increasingly over the past year is brands that you never really have associated with you know health and wellness industry necessarily showing a lot more consideration of how their product or services can have wellness inflections. So it's almost this this thread of well-being that's now weaving into I'd say virtually all of our reports in at least in the consumer attitudes and technology directories of stylists so you know I've written about automotive perspective on this kind of using biofeedback in kind of car interiors and creating more more soothing kind of healthful spaces for drivers we've seen it in finance we had a report on financial wellness recently which was looking at how kind of banks and investment companies were piloting financial therapy tools for consumers and really trying to integrate that sort of healthy money management into their kind of suite of services and then also in technology something that we tend to think of as being quite destructive to our well-being and you know the sort of mindless scrolling and that sort of thing but we've seen named just one example Facebook recently teamed up with an education board in India to create an AR digital safety and online well-being curriculum which was very much equating online privacy and behaviours with wellness for children. So I thought that was quite a, a fascinating sort of convergence there. So yeah, lots of exciting opportunities, definitely. And I think, importantly, consumers want this too, there was a, a global survey survey last year by Ogilvy which found that 75% of people feel brands could do more for their wellness and only 46% felt that brands take their wellness as a priority at the moment. So that kind of indicates that it's not, you know, being overdone or oversaturated. There is still more room for all brands to, to sort of tap the wellbeing wave.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's also concurrently a lot of work being done around mental health as well, being mm. one of the most important parts of, of the wellness movement. Perhaps, Rick, I believe you have just joined the Global Wellness Institute um, on the board. And you could tell us a bit more about the, the efforts there to to sort of tap into the this boom of mindfulness.
0: That's right, yes. I've actually been a member of the Global Wellness Institute for many years. And has uh, participated in it, but they recently named it, me it to their board of directors. And what the Global Wellness Institute does is it brings together experts and leaders in traditional healthcare, in mental well being, in the new modalities and old modalities of wellness and well being, brings them together into one circle to talk about what's happening, what are the trends. They published some really interesting reports. If you want to understand the economic value, of the wellness economy in the various countries around the world. It's a great place to go to check it out at globalwellnessinstitute.org. And what we're focused on right now, in fact, I mean, to Estella's point, is actually the mental well-being aspect of it. By the way, you can say wellness and well-being rather interchangeably. Purists will say that when you're talking about an individual, it's their well-being. When you're talking about societal, it's wellness. But regardless... Mental well-being, you know, was already under uh, severe stress before COVID hit, and COVID has amplified it in multiple ways. And you know what we have going on right now with the proliferation of technology, while bringing so many benefits to society that are obvious, is also having a lot of negative effects. the The human mind, the human psyche, has not had time yet to adapt to social media and instant global connection. And, you know, we can delve into that. That's, it's a huge topic, but it's something that I think is, is uh, we all have a common interest in addressing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that would be interesting to delve into because obviously I imagine everybody listening to this works for a company that takes advantage of social media. And, you know, especially if you're in, you're in marketing or communications, it's a vital place to be and to, to sort of be successful at how to do that without contributing to this mental well-being you know the toxic impact of social media is Mm -hmm. is a very interesting question and one that we've been trying to address at stylus as well over uh, the past couple of years i've written about it particularly from an angle of you know uh, the dark patterns that designers use to keep people addicted to certain sites and that kind of thing and how those elements of social media need to be improved more generally, but yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear a bit more about your thoughts on that.
0: Well, for sure. So, you know, we we live in a world today where people of differing opinions start developing different different views of reality, and it's precisely because we're consuming our our information, our our news from sources that are that are crafting that news to what we're interested in. And you, if you haven't watched the. The social, this is where you guys are going to have to edit a bit. What's it called? The Social Dilemma. Social Dilemma. yeah. yeah. Yes. If you haven't watched The Social Dilemma, uh, absolutely watch it. And, and this is where insiders at Facebook, at Google, Instagram, and Twitter talk about what's happening. And they talk about it with, with great clarity and openness. And the key message is that these aren't evil organizations. These are good people who built something. The vast majority of them believe they were building something good for humanity. But what's happened is the algorithms and artificial intelligence built into these systems create this echo chamber. We've all heard that term. Of course, in the US, this came into sharp focus in our recent election cycle, culminating in this group of people attacking our capital, believing in a reality that that actually doesn't doesn't actually make sense. And it isn't just that. And there's certainly plenty of echo chambers on the left as well. And so, we we've only had you think about it Facebook emerged in what 2007 you know we've had 13 years to get used to this concept Twitter really came into the the forefront in like 2012 this stuff is really recent and it's fundamentally changing how we interact as human beings and I and I think that I don't think I I truly believe that that our governments need to get involved there need to be set up systems and processes that check and balance the power of these things because these these businesses, these platforms are far more powerful than anything we've seen in prior history. And and they will they in some ways exceed the power of government. And and I think there is on a positive note, there is a consensus building in in, in all of the developed countries that we need to put in proper controls, controls to ensure that you know, false information that's very damaging doesn't just proliferate virally and, and tear apart society. And I think that the COVID pandemic, which forced people indoors, they took away the direct human contact where we can just literally see each other face to face and touch each other and hug each other. And instead we're, we're communicating through screens and, and particularly screens that are filtering out information that's contrary to whatever our bias may be, but only amplifying our biases and particularly amplifying our fears because fear is addicting and fear is the thing that makes us click on that thing and makes us stay engaged in that platform. And, and that's what these algorithms are doing. So it, it on the hopeful side of it, I think that governments and people everywhere are starting to recognize this.
1: I agree with what you say in terms of how it's been extraordinary how the pandemic has affected Or accelerated the move to digital for so many people, whether that's, you know, e-commerce or gaming or you know, just communication, like like we are now talking over Zoom. And there's been this huge shift to to sort of virtual interaction, which has obviously had a big impact on mental health. Estella, I wonder what you have seen in terms of fitness when it comes to the impact that the pandemic has made? What have, what have consumers' fitness motivations, how have they changed?
2: Mm, well, I think there's definitely been quite an interesting shift or perhaps diversification is a better word for of the motivations for people kind of pursuing different forms of exercise, much more kind of looking to the kind of anxiety or stress-relieving kind of benefits and, and kind of just not, not thinking so much perhaps about the sort of superficial reasons. So just just sort of bears out in quite a lot of data that we've seen. So I came across one stat that exercise is now the number one method of stress relief for American adults. And at the same time, searches for kind of calorie focused workouts were down 21%. In September sort of compared to the year before so it's quite an interesting indication that people are maybe looking for more sort of holistic reasons to be you know getting fit beyond just kind of looking buff <laughs> and, and in the UK it's a similar story as improving mental health and well-being was one of the top reasons that people said they were exercising during the pandemic I think ranked that as like a a sort of a top motivation and then relieving stress and anxiety had 38% of people agreeing so fat loss and keeping trim were kind of much lower on the list of priorities. I've even noticed it in, in you know my own workouts things like doing a Joe Wicks video he's bringing in conversations about mental health increasingly rather than just the message being sort of look at my abs or whatever. And I think our report on fueling future fitness looks at this evolution in um, a lot more detail. And it kind of also links to this rise in sort of mood led classes or concepts that we've been seeing. So things that kind of blend physical movement with breath work or meditation, music, that sort of thing. Adrienne Mishler, who's probably heard of, she's YouTube's biggest yogi. And she noted that she'd been receiving more requests for emotion-based yoga classes during the pandemic. So, for example, she had a yoga for loneliness video, and that was the most watched yoga video of 2020 on YouTube. So definitely indicating that people are sort of looking to, to fitness for more than just physicality, really. It's much more. Well, as it sort of sums up in the name mind and body, I think it really is about both of those things.
0: Exactly. This is a wonderful silver lining from the pandemic that I think we'll look back on years from now as an important pivot. And that is the the quality and amount of wellness-related content accessible through digital channels has just exploded in the last year. Mm. And, and this is going to vastly increase. And it sounds like from Estella's data is already vastly increasing access you know the, the the dirty little secret of the wellness industry prior to the pandemic was that it was largely practices for the affluent, and the middle income and lower income folks were were barely getting any of it, and so now anyone can access it. I mean, for free in places like YouTube, and then for vastly reduced costs through even live streaming classes or or appointments delivered through the screen.
1: Rick, you've got some great data about consumer behavior from from your platform. So it'd be interesting to see what some of the most surprising insights you've gained during the past 12 months.
0: Well, first of all, early in the pandemic, it was really quite striking. So on our platform, we can see uh, consumer behavior. And of course, we track it in, in an anonymized way that respects privacy. But what we saw around the globe was obviously in the early days of the pandemic, with the lockdowns, activity trailed way off. But almost immediately, we saw virtual activity, people attending streaming classes and sessions through off-the-shelf tools uh, like Zoom and Instagram Live and Facebook Live. That just took off and replaced it. We also saw a significant entrance of new people into the space because they had more time, they're sitting at home, they can't get out and do things. And so more people started hearing about the availability of these wellness practices. So we saw an expansion. Now, as the pandemic opened up, or as things eased off a bit in the summer in many places around the world, we saw that people very quickly would stream back into classes. What I mean is face-to-face classes. So the demand for the face-to-face experience did not taper off. Obviously, we were concerned for our our business owner customers, the ones who own all these studios and spas and wellness centers, that, that they would have a permanent damage to their business. That is not the case. Um, unfortunately, many of these business owners did not survive the, the pandemic. About one in four of them are gone, whether that existed a year ago. But those that remain have a pent-up demand for their services. So what we have right now is, is a supply-constrained wellness market, not a demand constraint. And so we're now predicting a huge boom in activity You know, as we reach herd immunity around the world and areas open up. And we're already seeing it in regions of the United States, and, you know, the 50 states are kind of an, un- a, an unintended experiment because each state is doing their own thing with regard to COVID restrictions and lockdowns and so forth. And so the states where they've opened up first, they're, they're filling their classes and they're filling their sessions again right away. I think that bodes very well for the future of the industry.
1: I wanted to talk about this, you know, it's a real imperative inclusivity for, for every business, but particularly in the wellness industry. I'd, I'd be interested to hear from both of you about how the industry is is, is improving inclusivity and what would you like to see more of? Well,
0: I, I think that you know what some of the data before the pandemic, this is a pretty consistent number and it was true in every developed country that, that we have presence in. By the way, we're we serve, serving around 55,000 wellness businesses prior to the pandemic in upwards of 60 countries. And what we saw is about one in five people are engaged. And these are, you know, in generally urban and, and, and populated areas where there's generally higher household incomes. It's still only about one in five. And you go into areas with, with lower household incomes and it drops off precipitously. It might be one in 20 or one in 50. And, and the problem being that just the cost of entry of doing something like that is, is, is quite high. You know, you could spend uh, you know a few hundred dollars or pounds sterling on this 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 practice in the way that it was being delivered in the past. What's happening right now, and as you're seeing, these businesses have shifted into a hybrid delivery model, where you can take face-to-face classes, and because there's a cost of labor and a cost of space, those are probably going to remain fairly highly higher priced. But you can also take virtual and remote classes as well. At the same time, you could have a hybrid membership where you have a combination of the two. Imagine meeting with your tribe, you know, uh, four or five times a month face-to-face, and then having an additional 10 classes where you're meeting remotely. Also, through algorithms like dynamic pricing, something that we do on the MindBody app, you can access classes that are off-peak times and find classes that are half price or one-quarter price. All of these things, I think, are combining, and we're seeing it in the data to democratize the wellness industry.
2: Mm, yeah, that's so interesting because, I mean, we hear a lot about how the wealth gap has been kind of compounded by the pandemic, and unfortunately, for a lot of people, things like gym memberships or you know a pampering treatment or even therapy often seem like luxuries that are just, yeah, not going to be the the, the top priority when when money is 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 very tight and. I, again, just uh, to to kind of back that up, I think this might have actually been Mind Body stat, but so a quarter of women said that gym memberships um, were too expensive for them, and so I think that for the wellness industry and and kind of yeah brands, gyms, operators, et cetera, it really need to be thinking about how to ensure that the inequities produced by the pandemic don't totally leave people out of the pursuit yeah. of wellness. And yeah, I think the dynamic pricing example that Rick mentioned is really interesting because we've, we've seen a few instances of kind of tiered pricing or pay it forward initiatives becoming more popular in this space. So hopefully we'll just see more of that. And then also kind of looking at diversity as well, kind of beyond kind of financial barriers. I think there's been some, some great examples of, of brands trying to sort of step up to make sure that, you know, they are opening kind of the opportunities to people who haven't typically been well represented in these spaces so we have a report called decolonizing wellness and another called harnessing the outdoor opportunity that have some great case studies on brands trying to make active lifestyles more accessible to everyone and to name one example and that there was the winter sports brand westerns had a scholarship campaign last year where they were offering i think it was yeah, a scholarship worth $15,000 to people of colour to who are into skiing or snowboarding to pursue that. And also the company Camp Wellness made its retreats and online courses, which were on kind of building a wellness business complementary to communities of colour until further notice. So that's just two examples of how the industry is sort of stepping up to, to address those imbalances
0: Yeah, it's a wonderful opportunity for society. It's also, frankly, a a wonderful business opportunity for for innovators who want to come into this space and help address this gap. And another element that's going to help that is all the data that is building around the benefits of wellness. I mean, the ROI is very clear. Mm -hmm. People who engage in wellness practices regularly are more productive. They get sick less often, and they're going to live longer. And so, you know, COVID laid this bare, didn't it? you know the people that suffered the worst from covid throughout this pandemic are those who had those pre-existing conditions of cardiovascular disease obesity type 2 diabetes cancer these are things that are largely preventable with wellness practices you know for for pennies on the dollar and and employers insurance companies healthcare providers are increasingly understanding this and so i think that really bodes well for the decade ahead as well
1: mm. So speaking of the of the decade ahead, I'd be interested. I mean, we started this conversation saying, you know, everyone's in the wellness business. And Estella, you mentioned how interesting it has been to see such diverse range of brands moving into this space. So I, it would be it would be good to sort of hear both of you or well, your thoughts on what can brands who perhaps aren't in this space yet, what can they do to take advantage of the surge of interest in, in wellness generally, but also what can they do to make them, make their uh, brands more well, well wellness friendly, I suppose you could put it, you know, what, what are the sort of trends that they need to be looking to? What are the, what are the moves that they need to be making? Maybe we can sort of have a, have a final sort of quick overview of what, uh, what brands can do right now to, to, to sort of take advantage of this boom.
0: Well, I, I'd like to start with, you know, brands being i.e. employers, uh, should start by walking the talk, having robust corporate wellness programs for their employees. It is not only will help you attract and retain talent, but you're gonna gain more productivity, more loyalty and and less sick time from your from your employees. So I think you start by walking the top. That's gonna to help immensely, and you can talk about that in your branding.
1: Great. Estella, what what are your thoughts?
2: Um, yeah, so I mean, I've I've I guess we've been thinking more about kind of what it might mean for people's behaviors in in the industry, like what consumers are going to be looking forward to or kind of expecting of brands when it comes to sort of things reopening again. So I think you know we've seen people kind of behaving in more of a maybe omnivorous approach to to their exercise. They've been able to kind of dip into different types of activity online often for free and so i'm kind of interested to see how that plays out with you know people wanting to try different types of exercise and kind of have the opportunity to maybe to mix up their routines a bit more and also have discovered new types of activity during lockdowns and i think there's also the the idea of infusing sort of nature into these offerings is going to be quite a kind of a long-lasting trend from this you know we've seen a lot of people choosing to exercise outside well because they've had to but then actually that's there's a lot of medical studies that support that you can actually get more kind of effective or kind of enhanced experience from from exercising in that space so I think that we might see a lot more of kind of these new or kind of alfresco formats kind of coming to the fore so I just saw. Over in in the UK, third space, sort of luxury gym chain just started doing alfresco classes to its members. And we've also seen some interesting sort of private gym pods cropping up. There's a company in Chicago called Bold, which has converted these shipping containers into kind of bookable private gym studios. So I think that the actual sort of the formats that it's not just a case of kind of business as usual, back to the gym versus doing the joe wicks in your living room it's kind of hopping between the two spaces to suit your lifestyle but also having these kind of yeah these alternative new formats coming to the fore and i think also that the question of kind of biophilia and kind of nature kind of awakening that we've seen through lockdown raises some quite interesting questions for kind of design of wellness spaces you know typically gyms have been these kind of quite Subterranean bunker-like environments, but you know, might we see a rooftop or a zen garden becoming a core part of the gym's DNA in future? We'll see.
1: So, Rick, at the end of every episode, I ask my guests three quick-fire questions, and the first one is: If you had a million dollars right now, where would you invest it? Um, Not necessarily in your own business, but any other kind of business or startup you've seen that you think has got growth potential.
0: Activities that bring people outside to enjoy nature.
1: Okay, brilliant. The second question is, what's a consumer problem or challenge you don't think has been successfully solved yet?
0: Well, we spoke to it, and that's the accessibility of practices that help people live healthier, happier lives. We need to democratize that and thereby vastly expand the market.
1: Great. And finally, which individuals or brands do you look to for inspiration in your work?
0: Oh wow. Well, there's there's so many people right now that are doing amazing things to, to change our world. And I man, I'm gonna have a tough one on this. you're gonna have to hit the edit button on this one. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like everything I say is gonna have some kind of angle on it. Okay, well, so you know, so I'm I'm a I'm a huge fanboy for Elon Musk. I think he's uh the genius of our generation. He's changing our world for the better, both through sustainable energy, which is what's happening through Tesla. And through SpaceX, that's going to allow us to explore other planets, which is truly, truly inspiring. And I'm inspired by multiple companies that are learning to do more with less and have less footprint. So it's difficult for me to name one, but there are dozens of them who are fully committed in a truly in a benevolent way to allow us to live even better lives and have less footprint on our planet.
1: Thank you very much for a really inspiring conversation there i think there's lots of food for thought for everyone listening i'd like to thank my guests rick stolmeyer and estella shardlow and thank you for listening i hope you'll join us next time for more future thinking from stylus you've been listening to future thinking from stylus the show where our analysts alongside industry thought leaders unpack the big trends you need to know about find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.